Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. We're here continuing today our series through the book of Romans, and we began this journey some four years ago, taking four chapters per year, and we're coming up on the end. We're in chapter 15 today, just two more chapters to go, and we're excited to be talking to you today about this message on living in harmony, living in harmony. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 15, verses 1 uh, through 13, and this word harmony uh, is the word that we want to use as a synonym for unity. However, we we prefer the word harmony in this case because unity is not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that we're exactly alike. It means that we get along as one, but we come from diverse backgrounds. And so harmony has more that sense of it. And we really need this harmony today because don't we live in a world today that is perhaps the most divided and the most um, uh, divisive of of any time, at least in my memory. Yet the church is supposed to be different. We're supposed to be known as a place of harmony, a place of oneness and unity. And I like this word harmony. I I have a background in music, and so I love music. And the word harmony speaks to uh, that which puts chill bumps on my arms when I hear a good vocal harmony. And, and you might not know this if you don't have a musical background, but those of you that do know what I'm talking about, that in harmony, you sing the same song, you sing the same words, but you don't sing the same notes. And they sound great together if you're harmonizing, if you're harmonizing. So one of the, one of the basics of Western music is that uh, we have seven notes in the major key, eight if you count the octave note. And if you do the one, three, five, which is those of you that do, re, me, that's the do, me, so, those three notes, that makes a triad or a chord. And when you put those together, it's a beautiful harmony. So do, me, so, me, so, do, like that. And so it's the, I can't do all three of them together, though. I need at least two of you to come up here and sing the me and the so, and I'll do the do, okay? That's what harmony is. You can't do it by yourself. It requires other people, not singing, not singing the exact same note, but a note that harmonize, harmonizes with the other note. So it's, not, it's not uniformity, it's harmony, it's unity. Singing the same song, singing the same words, but with a unique voice so that we sound like one voice. I wonder, are you living in harmony in your life today? Is there harmony in your family? Harmony in your house? Between you and your spouse, your children, harmony, oneness? Is there harmony where you go to work with your boss, with your coworkers? Harmony where you attend school with your teachers and your fellow students? Or is there trouble there? Is there disharmony, disunity? It really, it tears us up because disunity and disharmony is, it's, it's like poison to our peace. It's like It's like acid to our souls. There's something about us that wants peace, wants harmony, wants oneness. Yet our social media is plastered with disagreements and arguments over every conceivable 
topic you can imagine. We tune in the news and we see talking heads talking over each other, yelling their arguments, but no one seem, seems to be listening. Everywhere we turn, people are divided. Don't you see it? Don't you feel it? But yet the church is supposed to be different. We're supposed to live in harmony. Don't you want some harmony in your life today? As we look in the book of Romans chapter 15, the apostle Paul prayed that God would grant the believers in Rome that they would be able to live in harmony in Christ Jesus and so God would get the glory for it. And I believe today that, that in Christ, we too can live in harmony and God can receive the glory for our oneness in Christ. And as we look at the text today, I think we'll see four reasons that we can live in harmony with one another. So let's look at the text. We're in chapter 15, starting at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to you your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is God's word. We're looking for four reasons that we can live in harmony with one another because of Christ in us. And here's the first reason. Because Christ is in us, because we are in Christ, we can seek the good of others before ourselves. Because we have Christ living in us as believers, we can seek that which is better for others ahead of ourselves, before ourselves. First, I would have you look at verse 5, and you'll see the topic for today that Paul uh, talks about living in harmony. Do you, do you see it in verse 5? And he writes this as a prayer. It's one of two prayers that you'll see in these 13 verses, verse 5 and verse 13. Paul, uh, he preaches a little bit and then he starts praying. And he says, may the God of endurance. Now he had just talked in verse, uh, uh, verse 4, or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 4, talking about how the Old Testament gives us endurance and encouragement, and then he, he comes out of that and prays a prayer. And he prays like this. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, This is my prayer for you, believers, 
is that you would live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. And, and so that's where we get our, our title for this message today. It comes out of Paul's prayer in verse 5. And now I want you to look at verse 2. And I hope you have your, your, your bulletin notes there and hope you, you have an ink pen in your hand that you're taking notes. Uh, it, it's helpful when we take notes because it deepens our understanding and it, it helps our minds stay focused. Circle the word good in verse 2. Do you see that in verse 2, the word good? Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And so the first reason uh, that in Christ we can be in harmony with one another is because Christ didn't seek to please himself. Do you see it in verse 3? In verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Christ didn't live to please himself. And so because we have the mind of Christ, we, we are in Christ. Now remember, we have to go all the way back to chapter 12 to, to remember where we're at here in Paul's letter. He says, he says that because of the gospel and because we've received Christ, we no longer conform our thinking to the world, but we have this new mind, this new way of thinking that's transformed. So we have a transformed mind. And we talked about how this, this new mind has a new operating system, which is love. We have this new operating system of love that motivates us and moves us. And so now that we have this new mind of Christ, this new way of thinking, we're to seek the good of others instead of pleasing ourselves, which is the old nature. And by the way, if you, if you, if you understand what sin is, it begins with an attitude of the heart that says, I want to do it my way. I want to please myself. And that's, that's, where, that's where sin begins. It, be, it begins with seeking self. But, but this new mind says, no, I live to please others. I live to please God and I live to please others. And, and so this, this pleasing of others is to seek their good in order to build them up. Now let's look and see what he's talking about here because he's still talking about what he was talking about all the way through chapter 14. And he refers to these two categories of people. Verse 1, we who are strong, and then later, are to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, who are the strong and the weak? And we worked on this in chapter 14, so let's, let's back up the bus. It might be your first time here this morning, or you might have missed the last couple of weeks. So let's back up and talk about who does he mean. Does he mean physically strong and physical? No, he's not talking about physical. Does, does, what is he talking about? He's talking about where you're at in your Christian walk. How far along are you? The strong are those that are more mature. They've been a Christian for a while, and they've grown to understand the gospel and how it's to be worked out in their life. And they recognize that they can live according to the law of love, the operate, operating system of love, rather than legalism or rather than license. They're, they're traveling on the road of love, the operating system of love. And they have a liberty about them. And so they recognize they live by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not about rule keeping. But a new believer that's just got saved or just learning, just growing up, that's the weak, that category. That person still hasn't quite brought to bear on their thinking the gospel. So they, they might still be struggling with not sure if they are pleasing God, not sure if God really loves them. Not sure. So they're, they're trying to keep certain rules, and if they don't keep them, they feel as if God's not pleased with them. So they're, they're stumbling into one of two ditches, not on the road of love and liberty, but over here in legalism, so they think rule-keeping is somehow going to please God, or 
because they've become so beat up by trying to do rule keeping and nobody can keep even their own rules. All you have to do is check with people about the third week of January or just go to a local gym and try to get in the first week of January. You can't get in the gym. The people are lined about outside the door. Just wait till the end of the month. You'll be able to get any machine you want to because they, people can't even keep their own rules, their own uh, ideas of what they want to do for the year. And so, so once they get burned out trying to do rule keeping, they often just go, well, I'm just going to do this. I guess that's the way God made me. And so then they fall into the license ditch. But there's a better way. There's the transformed mind, and that's the way of love. And so he says, according to the way of love, the strong are not to look down their noses at the weak, but they have an obligation. Now there's a word that goes all the way back to chapter 13 where he said, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe honor, pay honor. And then he says, owe no man anything except to love them. So that's the, that's the ongoing debt that we'll never repay. So that word owe, owe, owe was back there at the end of chapter 13. Now he's brought it back and he says, we owe the weak something. What do we owe the weak? If, if, if you're a more mature Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you've grown in the gospel, you understand who you are in Christ, who your identity is in Christ, you, you have a debt to love others. That's chapter 13. But you also have a debt to watch out for the weak and to bear with their failings. Put up with. Bear up. And it goes on and says, because of Jesus, he didn't please himself and in fact, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on him, fell on him. And so if he can bear our sins, then we can certainly bear with the failings of the weak. So what, what does that look like? Well, let's, let's think about it with grown-ups and children for a second. Not spiritually, but physically. We had a prove-it verse just given to us from our children. Weren't we proud of them? We clapped and we, we supported them. And we were happy for them because we recognize they're younger than us and they need our encouragement. And so we accepted them. Uh, just, we just knew to do that because we're adults. But yet we don't seem to know to do that spiritually speaking. And so that we look down our noses on someone who, who's younger in the Lord or maybe they're not even in the Lord yet. Maybe you're visiting today and you're just checking out this whole God thing. And I want you to know something. This is a safe place for you to check out and find out who God is and what, what the Bible says for you. And it's also a safe place for you to grow. And I want us to be the kind of church where the strong bear up and bear the failings of the weak and not just put up with, not just put up with, but, but seek to please them in order to do good for them and to build them up and not to tear them down. I want this. Don't you want this church to be this kind of church that lives in such harmony and is marked by the way Jesus didn't seek to please himself but sought to please God and to do what was best for us. Now, when, when I see Paul talking about pleasing your neighbor and pleasing others, when I first started studying this, it disturbed me. I was like, Paul, why do you, you have to use the word please? Because I know in these other places in the Scripture, you wrote some things and some other people wrote some things that said not to be men pleasers. Don't live to please men, live to please God. And here you are saying, well, you said it like three times here. You said not to please ourselves. And then verse two, let each of us please his neighbor 
And then you said Christ did not live to please himself. So three times you used the word please and it disturbed me at first. And then I began to think, is there a difference between neighbor pleasing and men pleasing? And there certainly is. Refer to last week where we're to walk with discernment. You have to discern the difference here. The Bible's not contradicting itself, so dig deeper. And let's think about it for a second. Here he's saying, and he, and he, he qualifies his, his statement to please neighbor in verse 2. He qualifies it. He says, for his good to build him up. So it's not just please, just like agree with everything your neighbor does. No, have a view here of to do that which is best for your neighbor. Now, you might be thinking, what do I, what do I mean by men pleasing? I'll give you one verse that, that contrasts with neighbor pleasing. Neighbor pleasing means to, to, to seek to do that which would please your neighbor ultimately to help them grow up. Whereas men pleasing means that you just try to, to get along and not let them know who you really are. and You don't really love them. You just, want them to, you just don't want to argue that day. And that's men pleasing. Uh, it says in Galatians 1.10, Paul's speaking, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, here he was talking about man-pleasing, people being a people-pleaser. Just, you know, just, you know, I don't have an opinion myself. That's not what he means by neighbor-pleasing. I hope that's helpful because I needed to hear that when I was studying it. Like, Paul, what are you talking about? Please your neighbor. It's different. He means something different here to build up that person that might be weaker in the faith than you. And then he quotes the Old Testament here, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written. Now he's getting ready to quote the Old Testament here. That's as it is written. He sounds like Billy Graham. He doesn't give you the verse here. He just says, it's like Billy Graham used to preach. Billy Graham would be like, the Bible says like that, right? And that's what Paul's doing. He goes, as it is written. And he's quoting Psalm 69.9. At least he's quoting part of it. Let me read to you the whole of Psalm 69.9. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults or the, uh, uh, the reproaches of those who insult you have fallen on me. So a reproach is an insult. It's an offense. And so here... Paul is looking at that verse, and he sees Jesus in that verse that's written way back there in the book of Psalms. And if you'll remember in other places, you'll see in the Gospels that the Gospel writers saw zeal for your house has consumed me as descriptive of Jesus cleansing the temple. They referred to that verse when Jesus was overturning the money changers' tables. And then Paul's referring primarily, he didn't include that part of the verse when he quoted it, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Those of you that have offended God, insulted God, the reproaches against God, he took on that offense on himself. And so if, if, if he could live, if he could leave heaven, you think it was pleasing to him to do that? You think it was for himself that he did it? No, he did it to please his Father and to please us that he might do it for our good and to build us up. So he didn't do it for his own pleasure but he emptied himself and poured himself out and died on the cross so that the reproaches, the insults that were against God fell on him. And this is why he's quoting Psalm 69.9 here. He's helping us understand this is the Christ that now lives in us as believers and so that we are to be not, not copying him because we can't do it, but to yield to him inside of us so that we yield our thinking to him. This, this, this is huge. This is the strong will get this. It's not copying in effort, in human effort. 
But it's yielding to the Spirit of Christ so that your mind is transformed, that you seek the good of others rather than in front of your own self. It says this in 1 Corinthians, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. To have the transformed mind of Christ, to live in harmony, means that you seek the other ahead of yourself. Not to please yourself, but to please your neighbor. This is the first reason that we can live in harmony in Christ Jesus as a church. Here's the second. Because in Christ, we can worship with one voice for God's glory. Because in Christ... We can worship with one voice for God's glory. Paul continues to use Christ as the reason that we can live in harmony. The first was Christ didn't live to please himself. Therefore, we can let Christ in us, help us, put others first. But then it's because Christ lived for God's glory. We're in verses 4 through 6 now. And look down at verse 6. It says, with one voice, glorify. With one voice, glorify. In Christ, in one accord with Christ, we can, with one voice, glorify God. We can have this oneness, this harmony. So let's back up and just look at a few things. One, one thing I would say is that verse 4 is a digression. It's, I do this sometimes myself. Paul's preaching, and he quotes Psalm 69.9 to make the case that the reason... The reason that we can seek other people's good rather than trying to please ourselves is because Christ in us did it. And then he quotes the Psalms and then he goes, oh, by the way, let me tell you why I did that. It's like he digresses for a second and he goes, do you know why I quote the Old Testament? Let me tell you. And so verse four is kind of this little pearl that sits in the middle of these 13 verses today. And it just tells us the purpose and nature of the Old Testament. It just kind of sits there and says, do you know why you need the Old Testament in your Bible? That you don't just have a New Testament, but you also have an Old Testament. Here's why. And he gives it to you in verse 4. And here's the first reason is because you can find Christ on every page. He says, for Christ did not please himself as it is written. And then I quoted that verse to you a minute ago. And the zeal for your house, that was about Christ. And the reproaches that were against you have fallen on me, that was about Christ. So Paul, when he looks at the Old Testament, he's always looking through the lens of Jesus. He's looking for Jesus on every page. You want to know how to understand the Old Testament? Look for Jesus. Look for Christ. And besides, when you read the Old Testament, don't start from the beginning, start from the back. Read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament. But it's not just because of that. So one of the reasons you should uh, affirm the Old Testament and study the Old Testament and preach the Old Testament is because we should look for Jesus there. But then the second reason, he begins to number them for whatever was written in former days. That's the Old Testament. Was written for our instruction. So it's there to instruct us. Practically speaking, read the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters. If you don't know what chapter to read, just look at the day of the month. Okay, today's the 30th. Let's read Proverbs 30. You've heard it said, an apple a day will keep the doctor away. Well, maybe a proverb a day will keep the devil away. Try that. But he says it was written for your instruction. So it's got practical help. It was written for your endurance. And so you read the stories and you see how the saints went through what they went through and how God was faithful. So it helps you be... Uh, able to endure and persevere. It's for your encouragement. And so the scriptures are to encourage you and to build you up. And he's not finished. He goes, that you might have hope. So there's five reasons for the Old Testament. Because you can find Christ, 
because it gives instruction, because it'll help you persevere, because it'll encourage you, and because it'll give you hope. And then he goes, let me get back to my case now. That's all in verse 4. I wasn't preaching that, neither was Paul. That was a digression. That was a sidebar. That's pretty good. I couldn't resist it. And so now he goes on and he's working out this prayer. And he says, as I said before, this is his first prayer. May the God, may this be so, may God, because he'd been talking about endurance and encouragement from the Old Testament. And then he decided, I, I'm going to pray out that. What I, what I just said, I'm now going to turn it into a prayer. The scripture will give you endurance and encouragement and hope. Oh, wait a minute. I pray that you would have that. I pray, I pray that you would have that. I pray that you would have endurance and encouragement, that God, that the God of endurance and encouragement would grant you to live in such harmony. I mean, such harmony, not just a little bit of harmony, such harmony, sweet harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So he's the head and you'll be in accord. You'll, it'll be according to him in you so that God gets the glory. Now, which God are we talking about? We're talking about God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he'll get the glory. I want you to worship like that. I want you to worship in harmony. I want you to be a church that is one that is in harmony with one, one another. And it wasn't just Paul that prayed this. It really originates with Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Not talking about, not talking about the Lord's teaching prayer. They call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the Lord's teaching prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then, uh, and then he said, our Father which art, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's, that's him teaching the disciples how to pray. But if you want to know a recorded prayer from Jesus, go to John 17. And this is the prayer, this is the last prayer he prayed before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what he prayed for? Of all the things he could have prayed for, do you know what he prayed for? That we would be in harmony, in unity, in oneness with each other. Because he knew that that would mark us as unique on planet earth. Here's, here's a little taste of that prayer, John chapter 17. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. You know what the greatest advertisement for faith in Jesus is? Harmony in the church. Oneness. That we are one. That we're different from the rest of the world. But that harmony is not something you can just make happen. There first must be peace in your own soul. You must first have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because that's where all warfare comes from. The book of James says, do you know why there's fightings uh, out in your life? It's because you've got fightings on the inside. And all you're doing is just carrying it from the inside out. Well, so he's praying for oneness. And worshiping together is a wonderful, pleasant Beautiful. When we worship together in harmony, when we're the church in harmony, it, it's a pleasant fragrance to God, but also to the world. Look what it says in Psalms. I want you to think about this picture with me for a second. Psalm 133. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, that ran down his beard, and onto the border of his robe. Now that's a little bit alien to us. We, 
we're not used to, to that kind of language. But the psalmist here is saying that harmony, unity among the brethren, it's, it's as pleasant and wonderful as the fragrance that filled the temple whenever Moses was commanded by the Lord. You can find this over in the book of Exodus chapter 30. The Lord gave a recipe for this anointing oil that was special anointing oil. And it had uh, spices in it like frankincense and myrrh that had a certain odiferous beauty to it that a lot of modern day perfumes are based on. And they had this mixture with olive oil and others. And he said, I want you to anoint Aaron, who is his brother from the tribe of Levi, he's the first high priest of Israel. I want you to anoint his head. Now, I don't want you to just put a couple of drops. I want you to pour it out on his head so that it runs down his hair and runs through his long beard and runs down his robes all the way down to the tassels at the border of his robe. And the psalmist here is imagining that that fragrance is like a picture, that oil running down is like a picture of, of the unity of the brethren when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to kind of unpack that with you just for a second to think about, to reflect on that, what that's like. If you think about oil in the Bible, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about the word anointing in the Hebrew, the word anointing gives us the word Messiah. And in the, and in the Greek, in the New Testament, gives us the word Christos. Christ, the anointed one. Now I want you to think about how Aaron was a picture of Christ and think about how the Holy Spirit poured down upon the head and how the body is the church. And so that, so that this harmony, this oneness, this fragrance of the anointing oil is pouring down all the way to the bottom of his robe. And we're the church. And so it marks us as being part of the body of Christ. So that we have this beautiful fragrance in the world that makes us different. That we're at one with each other and the world wants to know why. And they want to know this Jesus. This is the second reason that we're to live in harmony. Because it gives glory to God. Because there's no other way we could live in such a way as husbands and wives, as families, as the church. is because we have Christ as the head. Here's the third reason. In Christ, it's because in Christ we can welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. We're to live in harmony and we're able to because in Christ we can welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. We're in verse 7. And there are really only two imperatives here in this passage, 13 verses. The first imperative was to please your neighbor. The second was to welcome one another. We started to name this, this message good manners because it's just good manners to, to say please and you're welcome. <laughs> But these are the two commands here. And why, why are we welcome one another? Because Christ welcomed us. And he lives in us now. And we have a transformed mind. We have the mind of Christ now as believers. And as we're growing up to maturity, more and more we're like Jesus. And so we become a people that welcomes others. And we're to be a welcoming church. This goes all the way back to the first part of chapter 14. Now, you might not know this about the Bible, but when it was originally written, it didn't have chapter markings and verse markings. These were, these were added so you could find the section you were looking for. And so 14 just goes right into 15 and really concludes at verse 13 of chapter 15. But he's bringing back this idea that he began in chapter 14, verse 1. 
I'll read it to you just to remind you. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now you can go back and watch that sermon from a couple of weeks ago, but what I'm telling you is contextually, he's still in this conversation. It's connected, and he's, and he's saying one of the marks of this harmony, this living together in harmony as a church, is, is that you're a welcoming church. And the way you can tell you're a welcoming church is how you treat strangers. We're, we're going to welcome people from our small group. Oh, oh brother, I haven't seen you since Wednesday night, you know. I pray, we prayed together Wednesday night. Yeah, no one has to urge us to do that. that. That comes natural. But what doesn't come natural is to welcome someone that's different than you. Their t-shirt has a different college team on it than yours does. They like a different barbecue than you do. They voted for a different president than you did. I could go on. The stranger, the one that's different. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 25 where he talked about a king and how in the end of time that there would be a throne that would separate the sheep from the goats. And the way he would know the sheep is by how they had responded in this way. So let's look at it just a brief amount of time here. For I was hungry, this is Matthew 25, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who knows what the stranger might represent? Jesus says, treat the stranger as if it were me knocking at your door. Whew. Whew. I was reading a book this past week um, written by Pastor Jim Cimbala. He's the pastor of, uh, of uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he was telling a story where he would preach six times that weekend. I think it was like three times on Saturday and then three times on Sunday. And he was sitting on the front of his platform and, and, the, and the, he'd already prayed with people down front. And he was utterly wrung out and exhausted completely poured out every ounce. He poured out next week's energy. He was exhausted. He was sitting on the front stage. And everybody left. And there was one guy like standing in the middle of the room. And he looked at the guy. And he could tell the guy he, he was homeless. And he said, I could smell him from there. And I thought to myself, oh, come on, Lord. Haven't I done enough? Haven't I poured out enough? So he walked over to him and said, can I help you, buddy? And he started reaching for his wallet to see if he could find some money to give. He's, normally, I don't give money to people. I, I try to give them a, you know, some sort of connection to where, because if I give them money and the guy's an addict, I'm just helping his addiction. So normally I don't, but I was, I was just wrung out. And I was going to break my own policies. I just, and he says, he pushed my hand away. And the smell of the guys, I got closer to him made me have to cover my nose, he said. And I said, well, what, what can I do to help you, brother? I just wanted to get rid of him. He said, 
I was laying outside in front of your building and you have, you know, those loudspeakers out there. He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, I want to know this Jesus you've been bragging about. And he said the Holy Spirit fell on him and he felt his heart pricked and he felt tears come into his face and he realized, I don't, I don't have Jesus telling me what to do right now and this, this man just wants to hear the gospel and then look at me. And so immediately he said, I didn't care what he smelled like. I hugged him and I took him home with me and we fed him dinner. Long story short, he said five, six years later, he met his future wife at our church. We gave him a little job at the church and helped him get on his feet. And he goes, I was standing at the front of the church doing his wedding. Turned out, I thought he was an old codger. He was just in his late 20s. He was just so beat up by the streets and his beard and hair was so long. Turned out he was... Fairly good-looking guy, young guy. And there I was getting ready to do, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of these many witnesses. I was getting ready to do the wedding, and I just started boo-hooing, he said. I couldn't even open up. And the guy looks at me, and he starts patting me on the shoulder like, It's okay, Pastor. It's okay. He said, I couldn't stop thinking about how I almost blew it with this guy. I almost blew it with this guy. Because I didn't welcome the stranger. But Christ in us... Remember, he welcomed us, and we were all strangers before he did. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Here's the fourth reason that we can be a church that lives in harmony. It's because Christ, because in Christ we can serve together as one people with the same hope. We can serve together as one people with the same hope. Notice verse 8, verse 8 now. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. You see that word servant? In Christ we are to become servants too. What kind of servant was he? Well, first of all, he was a servant to the circumcised. Well, who in the world is that? That's the Jews. That's another way of referring to the Jews. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now we're back in the Old Testament again. Who are the patriarchs? Patriarch has to do with someone that's the founder of a family or a tribe. And who's that? who would that be? He's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referring to those Old Testament figures that were the founders, if you will, the fathers of the Jewish tribe. And he says there were promises given to them that Christ became a servant of in order to prove those promises true, to confirm them. There was promises made to Abraham that his, he would be like a nation that was so big that it would be like the sands of the, of the beach at the sea. It would be like the stars of the sky. And that, that through his seed, referring to Christ, that the nations would be blessed so that even the Gentiles would be blessed. Those promises were given all the way back there. And they hadn't been fulfilled yet until we got over here. And Paul's referring to that. So Christ became a servant to fulfill that for the circumcised. But not only them, because he's not finished, verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And now he's going to throw four more Old Testament readings at us in order to build up the Gentiles, which is most of us. I don't know if anybody here has a Jewish background, but most of us have a Gentile background. And he, he, he's talking to this church in Rome, and they come from these different places, and they have these different holidays and these different diets and these different ways of dressing. And he's basically saying, way back here, 
God was already promising that he was sending one that would be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He would come and he would come for the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and so now he's getting ready to make his case for the Gentiles and how they can serve together with the circumcised, with the Jews. So now he's in verse 9 and he says, he, he quotes this, he goes, as it is written, here we go again. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's Psalm 1849. That's Psalm 1849 he's quoting. The Bible says, right there, boom, right there. The Gentiles are going to, they're going to say, and then verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with the Jews. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. And he's doing this for the Jews too. He's going, now your book ain't just your book. It's also, the, it's also a book for the Gentiles. Did you know that, Jews? It's, all for the, it's also for them. It's not just the Hebrew Bible. It's for us too. It's for, it's for the whole world that would believe in Jesus. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. That's Psalm 117, 1. Paul's making a case that we're one church, Jew and Gentile. Now it's all, we're all one in Christ. And then he's got one more for us, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, he decides to quote the prophet here by name. I don't know if Paul had forgotten the addresses of the others. I, 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 I doubt it. I doubt it. Because that Apostle Paul, I don't think he was carrying a backpack around with all those scrolls, like the scroll of Isaiah by itself. If you were to unroll it, it'd go all the way to the back of the room. That's a big scroll. That's a big old scroll. The scroll of Isaiah, it would lay out on a table this wide. You'd roll it out like that. You'd have to have help with that thing. And there was no chapter and verse markings there. But see, the thing about the Apostle Paul is he studied under the Rabbi Gamaliel. I'm thinking that Paul memorized the whole Hebrew Bible. I think he had it committed to memory. And I think he could just pull it like this. As it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And oh, by the way, from the Isaiah scroll, it says this. Be saved for the best for last. The root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of David who became king, who God promised that he would have a son on the everlasting throne that would have an he would never uh, fail from being on that throne. He's talking about the Messiah. It would look like the Jews were cut off, that, that there was a stump of Jesse that a shoot would come out of. The, the root of Jesse will come. And so he's talking about the Messiah there. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles and in him, who, who's, who's him? Christ Jesus will the Gentiles hope. And he's going to do what he did earlier, earlier when he started talking about encouragement and to start talking about endurance. He goes, let me pray for that. Well, then he says the word hope and he goes, well, let me pray for that now. And so then he closes with verse 13 here with another prayer. Here's his benediction. May the God of hope, earlier it was, may the God of endurance and the God, you know, the God of encouragement. Well, here it's the God of hope. He, he already put his text out there. He's got his Isaiah text out there. He goes, let me turn that into a prayer. Okay. May the God of hope fill you. Who, who, who's that? That's us. That's the church. With all joy. Not watered down at all. Just pure joy and peace in believing. So that, that's a result clause coming our way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Not just a little bit of hope, abound. That means, that's a superlative in the Greek. It has the idea of full and overflowing, more than the cup can contain. 
And it reminds me again of that oil running down from Aaron's head all the way to the border and the tassels of his robe, that this kind of hope would be ours in harmony with Christ. God wants unity, not uniformity. It says in 1 Corinthians, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. So we're to work together around King Jesus. He's our unifying Lord, but we have different gifts and we sing different notes, but we sing the same song. And when we serve together in harmony, it makes the Lord famous. Doesn't make us famous, makes Him famous. It says in Psalm 102, So the name of the Lord will be made known in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem when the people gather together and the nations gather to serve the Lord. It's going to make Jesus famous when we serve together in harmony. And that's the way we're to be known in this world. Tomorrow evening we'll be serving in Rocky Mount at our Rocky Mount campus doing a little thing called Trunk or Treat. We do this to try to reach our community there. We're collaborating with another local church in Rocky Mount and I'll be one of a couple of other pastors there. Our, some people are like, how are you going to dress up for Trunk or Treat? Well, I'm going to be dressed as me, but I'll be wearing a day glow orange t-shirt that says, how can I pray for you? Because what we're going to be looking for is opportunities for people that are far from God to come that celebrate the holiday that we can just talk to them about Jesus and pray with them. So uh, we'll be serving there tomorrow. And then this coming weekend uh, at our Wilson campus, we'll be setting up a booth downtown for the Whirly Gig Festival Saturday and Sunday. Why do we do that? So that the city will see us serving together. And we will be making cotton candy and painting people's hair and, and doing all kinds of things. But mostly we'll be doing it so that we can give all the proceeds to the Hope Station to feed the hungry. And so that we can celebrate Jesus in our city and let them see us serving together in harmony for one Lord and one hope. I think it makes a difference if we get out there and do those things. Hope you'll sign up for those things as you contemplate how you're going to spend your next few days. Well, as we close, I would remind you of this. Paul is praying and Jesus is praying that we would live in harmony with our brethren, with one another. That's how we'll give glory to God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, first I pray for that person who's not in harmony with you. And you know who you are. You, if you would just admit that and say, Lord, I know that I have not lived pleasing to you. I've been living to please myself. But I want to change this morning. I'm tired of the disunity and the brokenness in my life. And I want to give my life to you. And so I, I pray now, Lord, admitting that I'm a sinner and praying, Lord Jesus, I know I know that you died on the cross for me and that you were raised from the grave and that you live today. I believe that. Come and live in me. Forgive me of my sin. and Make me a child of God. I, I want you as my Lord and Savior. If you're praying that prayer believing, he will save you. He'll make you right with the Father. Others are here today and you've received the Lord as your Lord and Savior. You've, re you've received Jesus. But... This message has really troubled your heart. You're thinking of that stranger that you've turned away, that person that you're not right with, that family member or that church member that you're not in harmony with. Would you hear the word of the Lord today that says to you, in Christ, 
We are to bear one another's burdens. We're to bear with one another's failings. We're to live in order to live for the good of others. Would you just right now say, Lord, forgive me. Give me the mind of Christ and help me to live as Christ would have me live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.